It's great to have you with us. Uh, it's, uh, we've got quite a few people away with Doc K and a few other things overseas, but um, it's still good to gather together. And, and what I want to do today is I want to talk about this uh, place of connection. I want to follow up what Ashley was talking about last week. She shared a great message last week, and I encourage you to grab that on the podcast. Uh, you can get it via our app, or you can get it on um, your normal podcast channel. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, then don't worry. Uh, but I, I do apologise, we don't do tapes anymore. Uh, we've been having some, I've been having lots of chats lately. I've had a couple of significant chats, many, many chats with people about this journey into Zion and, and, and what that means and our perspective on that, because everybody has perspective. And it's been fun for me, I suppose, and fun because I like challenge, to, just to observe the journey and how the transformation is happening. I've called this a rebirth process. So that is, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned weeks ago or a couple months ago about John chapter 3 and the conversation Jesus had, um, it was Nicodemus, right, where he spoke with him and, and, and said, you must be born again to experience the kingdom. That's a rebirth. It's a new spiritual birth. Um, and so that's what I'm sort of talking about what we're going through. And, and I just want to acknowledge that there has been a lot of work being done in the background, and there continues to be work done, and, and there are certain people that are really working tirelessly to support the church family along that journey, and, and this is just me publicly saying thanks to everyone for the hard work that they do. Progress does not happen without hard work. And... Uh, and speaking of physical work or hard work, I want a, a, a sort of segue in our family. We have this um, love-hate relationship with hard work and, and training and physical training. And, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm sad to say, it's more of a, a seasonal ebb and flow, specifically with regards to exercise in our family. Uh, and uh, I'm, that's my confession. Uh, and no one else is here to back me up on that from my family all away this weekend. But um, I won't tell too many stories about them. But, but because, maybe I should, because they're not here. But one of the hardest working, most abused pieces of equipment in our garage, even though it's currently used as a close error, is the treadmill. And we're, in fact, we're on our second treadmill as a family. We just literally wore the other one out, had it repaired a couple of times, and then it just got to the point where the lady I spoke to about it, she said, I can't believe it's still alive. And I suggest you transform into a new model, which we did years ago. And, 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 and so it's, it's hard working. Uh, so um, it's, it's, I won't tell the stories about the family, because I promised myself I wouldn't. Last year, with our treadmill at home, it stopped working, and like I said to you, it's relatively new, and, and I, was, I was quite you know, like excited that I didn't have to use it for a while, but then um, one day, Case was in our house um, for coffee, and, and many of you will know Case, he's a local electrician, a friend of ours, and he was in the house, and I just said to him, oh, the treadmill stopped working, and Case being Case is like, huh, let's have a look. And like before I could finish making his flat white, he's ripped the cover off and he's got his tester out and he's, he's looking inside this treadmill and at parts I didn't even know existed. I thought there was just a monkey in there, like, like peddling to make the thing go round, but there's electronics in there and there's all sorts of other things in there. And, and what was remarkable was that he, he managed to locate the piece of equipment that, um, that was broken. And it's, it's amazing. Like, there was an issue with the electronics. Now, this is, oh, that's me. 
Uh, you don't need to worry about that. Uh, this is the electronics inside a treadmill. Would you believe that? It's amazing. It's called a motherboard. And then that reminded me, because that's what it's called, it reminded me of a joke I saw on Facebook last week that this person was saying, don't you dare assume the gender of that circuit board. But it is literally called a motherboard. You can ask Google. It's, it's a motherboard, and it's a circuitry board. And there's probably people here that are far more intelligent than me that design these things, and they make them work. And Case, my friend Case, is one of those people. This is the second circuit board in my house that he has repaired. Um, the other one was for the, the garage door opener. But Case managed to locate the circuit on that board that wasn't working. And he came back a week later with this board repaired, and he said, this is the piece I replaced. And he held out his finger, and on his finger was this little thing the size of, was smaller than the head of a nail. And I'm like, man, he's clever. But the point is that inside the circuit board, there's lots and lots and lots of connections. And this is what I wanted to talk about today. The truth is the connections on that motherboard to make the treadmill function and play my music for me is based on hundreds of connections that work together well. And when the connections are broken, it doesn't work. Well, it's the same with the church. It's the same with the family. It's the same with us. There's lots and lots of connections, and the truth is we're dependent on those connections functioning in order that we would operate effectively the way we're designed to operate. And when the connections break down, we can't be effective. That's my point. So this led me to ask this question, why are we connected? What is the whole point behind this? And, and this is the journey I want to go through today, following on from Ashley's great message last week, where she spoke um, about that, and I'll refer to that at the end. But the point is, why has God designed us to be connected together as family? Why has he designed the church to be kind of this unique organization that represents him? I mean, after all, we're called the body of Christ. We're supposed to represent him, and, and we're designed to connect together. And I think it's a specific um, principle that is getting discombobulated or disestablished or fragmented or fractured. And, and I think that this is the opposition to the design of God. I mean, the, the worldwide trends that I um, looked at um, last week are generic across the Western world. Just look around. Sunday attendance is in rapid decline in every church in the Western world. Almost every church. Like, people come to church about once a month now on average. That is the Western standard. If we also look at um, volunteer number for events, you know, it's becoming harder and harder, and it's usually the same old, same old that end up fronting up to do the work to make an event function. It's trended worldwide. Like I can listen to podcasts from pastors in the US or Australia or in the UK, and they're all saying the same thing. They're experiencing this change, this new normal. Um, giving numbers, giving numbers are in decline uh, right across the world. Less than half the people in a church are regularly giving, less than 50%, and it's the same for us. And the participation in connect groups, um, these statistics are depressing. But here's why I tell you that. That's the world's normal. My prayer is that we wouldn't be normal. My prayer, when I'm on my face before God praying for this church family, is I'm saying, Lord, let us not be normal. 
Let us not be the same as those statistics. Let us not go and get sucked into the priorities of the world and lose our connection with each other because I'm fearful that if we lose our connection with each other, we lose our effectiveness in our mission. And I'm accountable for the mission before God who called me. So what I want to do today is, is to finish back in the book of Acts, which is where Ashley was talking last week. But if you're taking notes, this is the title for my message today. Oh, that was the title. Here we go. Let's just wait for the technology to keep up with me. Plugged in for power. Plugged in for power is the title of my message today. And, and you might ask, well, what kind of power? Well, I'm going to land on that at the end of the message. You'll have to wait to the end to see that. But what I want to do at the beginning is I want to take a look at David. I want to start with David. And David is a, I want to look at the beginning of David's story. David is a young man in the middle of the Old Testament. I'm going to um, flick to 1 Samuel 16, uh, if those of you wanted to look in your Bibles. I want to look at this young man. I want to see a few things about him. I want to pull out some principles and some keys for us that we can learn from the man called David, or the young man, uh, as he he is at this point. So look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, if you're writing down notes for scriptures. So, so, so Samuel's a prophet. I'm sorry, I'm just totally lost my place here. Samuel's a prophet, and he's looking at Jesse's sons because he's going to anoint a new king. And seven of them, it says, come forward. And God's like, mm, nope, none of these. And so Samuel the prophet says in verse 11, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats not considered to be important enough to be at the meeting with the church prophet. Send for him once, Samuel said, we will sit down to eat, not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for David. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Isn't it just amazing that God put that in the Bible? Like, why? I don't know, but David was handsome and had beautiful eyes. This, the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So David stood there amongst his brothers, and Samuel took the flask of oil, symbolizing God's presence on him and his setting apart. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah, to his home. So we see David called out by God. And, and, and as I was reading through the scripture and I kind of thought I'd follow David's story, I felt like the Lord put the handbrake on and just totally stopped me in the middle of my preparation. So in my notes, I've called this a prophetic interruption. Because what we see here is a young boy who wasn't considered important enough to come to the meeting. And yet God chose him. And I really felt that there was going to be someone here that would be feeling like they're not important enough to be chosen by God. That they're not important enough or they're not seen. They're hidden. They're out in the fields. They're away from the spotlight and that God can't use them or won't use them. And the prophetic interruption in this moment is to stop that thought. Because I want you to understand David's history. David's great-grandmother, do you know who she was? So David's, David's father was Jesse. Jesse's father was Obed. Thank you. Okay, check the Bible. And Obed's father was Boaz. And Boaz was married to 
Ruth. So, so David's great-grandmother was Ruth, but who was Ruth? Ruth was an outcast. She was from a completely different nation. She was widowed. She was left alone, and she was cast off by her mother-in-law. And yet she said, I will not go. I will not defy your Lord. I will come with you. And God took her heart as a sign of humility, and he embraced her into his family, and therefore embraced her into the lineage of David because Boaz, a wealthy man, married her. So never ever discount yourself because you don't think you're good enough or you don't come from the right family or you don't have enough training or you think you're hidden in the fields. Ruth was a widow in a foreign land, hungry, and yet she went out because she was determined that God would find her. And I just wanted to interrupt the message to to find whoever this person is. And you don't have to put your hand up. You might not even be in this room. You might be watching on the live stream or you might be listening to this audio weeks after God's shared this thought. But I want to conclude that thought with a scripture from Ephesians chapter 1. All praise to God, Paul writes in verse 3. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Oh my goodness, unpack that. Because we're united with Christ. Even before he, God, made the world, God loved you and chose you in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God, God decided in advance to adopt you. Same as Ruth, he decided to adopt you into your, his own family, bringing you to him through Jesus. It's what God wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So I don't know who that's for, but that was the prophetic interruption that God had this week, to call people out back into a place of understanding he is the one who chooses us and invites us and includes us. Let's look at David. I want you to see that David was a man chosen by God and he was given a promise. It's not explicitly laid out in this, in this verse that I read you in 1 Samuel 16, but if you turn the page backwards and you see God said to Samuel, go there and anoint one of Jesse's sons as the king. There's the promise. And so Samuel went to do that and it's David who came out with his beautiful eyes and the Lord said, anoint him but it didn't happen right away. He didn't suddenly get a crown put on his head. He didn't get whisked off and put in robes and sat on the throne because there was a man on the throne and his name was Saul. And Saul hadn't finished his story yet. So what we see here, you can see on the screen, David waited for God's timing in the promise. So the key, key in the bottom there is obviously the promise. The key that we've got to focus on is the promise. The key we've got to remember is the promise. The thing we've got to focus on is what has God said. Whenever I'm counseling or um, leading, mentoring someone in a state of confusion, I always say to them, let's go back. What is the last thing we know God said? Many of you would have got the McCarthy's email update. They're a family that have come from Tiamudu, out of Tiamudu into Cambodia. And the mission that they thought they were going to serve is not the one that is currently going to be served by them. There's been some massive changes. They spent two weeks in a state of confusion. What I loved about the testimony that they emailed out to us who are supporters of them, the testimony said this, we went back to what God said to us. May that be a lesson for all of us. If you're ever in a state of confusion or your reality doesn't look like what you think it should, go back to the last thing you know God said to you and anchor yourself in that. And that's what David does. He just anchors himself there. He doesn't judge the promise by his circumstances. He waits for God's timing. Let's have a look at 1 Samuel 17, because what I love about David is he doesn't just stay in the fields 
whistling Dixie and hoping God turns up on a, on a cloud to make him the king, he gets up and he does some stuff. So when you're waiting for God's promise, don't get lazy. 1 Samuel chapter 17, many of you know the story. You probably, many of you got read this when you were a child. There's a big ugly guy who's taunting God's army and they're all scared and they won't go out to fight him. He's really, really, really tall, really strong, and he's formidable. And he's taunting the army. But I love what David does. He rocks up to deliver some snacks to his brothers. He's not even considered old enough to be in the army. He's a young boy. And dad says, oi, go and take some cheese and crackers to your brothers because they're on the front line. And so he trots up there and he's like, well, what's going on? Why are you following Stan around? Well, there's Goliath out there, isn't he? And he's yelling at them. Every day he comes out and yells at them and ridicules them. Your God won't even save you. You can't come out and fight me. And I love what David does. I'm just going to read it from verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17. David replied to the Philistine, that's Goliath, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, that's the Yahweh we just sang to, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defiled. Today... The Lord will conquer you, and I'll cut your head off. I love that. The Lord will conquer you, and I'm going to cut your head off. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. This is this young fellow delivering cheese and crackers. He's got his sass on. He says, you're not going to defy the God of the armies of heaven. I'm going to cut your head off after God kills you. Everybody, look, this is really important, this verse, 47. Everyone assembled here will know the Lord rescues his people. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. I love the sass in that. Why? Because David, as a young man, knows that God does not abandon his people, that God is faithful to his covenant and to his promise, and he will fight on behalf of his people to bring about victory. That's a word for many of us right there. The other thing I want you to see as I turn the page is that David enjoyed the favor of God. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 5. Whatever Saul, who is the king, so, so David gets ushered in to serve the king. He's promised to be the new king, and here we find him serving his predecessor, who's got an attitude problem. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him, David, a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers. So everybody loved David, not just because he had beautiful eyes, but because he had the favor of God on him. And what he did, he did well. He was excellent. And he stood out. And the other men in the army really appreciated. Well, what does it say there? He was welcomed by the people. So it, it, was, it was favor on him. So he's anointed. He's focused on the promise. He's not lazy. He's got favor of God and he's liked by others. But it doesn't always go easy for him. Because have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 12 and 13. Well, actually, what if we started from verse 10? The next day, a tormenting spirit from God. It's going to mess with some of your theology. A tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day. So he's got beautiful eyes and he's a musician. Oh, he's, he's awesome. Um, but Saul had a spear in his hand and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David. So the king is afraid of the boy. 
For the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men. And David faithfully led his troops into battle. So life's not easy for this guy, but he's focused on God's promise. And then it gets worse. So I don't know if you've read the story, but first Samuel 19, let's just look at verse 9 and 10. One day Saul was sitting at home with a spear in his hand and the tormenting spirit from the Lord, here's that spirit again that God sent to, to mess up Saul, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon Saul again as David played the harp. Maybe it was country music or something, I'm not sure. But Saul hurled his spear at David. David dodged out of the way and, and left the spear stuck in the wall escaped and he fled into the night. So this king that he's called to serve is throwing a spear at him. Sometimes when you're waiting for a promise, it means putting your chin out there and expecting that possibly, maybe, some people are going to throw some stuff at you. I mean, like, as a church pastor, I would never have experienced that. No one's ever going to throw insults or accusations or judgment or condemnation in my direction, for sure. So I don't really understand this, but, but maybe you've sat in a place where you're waiting for a promise and people have judged you, or they've accused you of not doing the right thing, or maybe they've, they've sort of misinterpreted what you're doing and they've, they've just gone on a different wavelength. You know, I'm well aware that when I sit with someone and their circumstances don't line up with God's promise, I'm not to judge them, because I'm not fully cognitive of what God's doing in them to prepare them for the promise. And all I've got to do is ask them, what did God say? And if they're clear on that and we're in unity to pray into that, then God and them are on a journey. But watch out. Because when you put yourself in a place to wait for God's promise, there are going to be people who throw stuff at you. And then just when you thought the conflict was really bad, we find a toilet story. Oh, my clicker. Come back, clicker. Sorry. This, it takes a while to catch up. There we go. A toilet story in the middle of the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. As it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then Saul, David's conscience began bothering him because he'd cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my Lord the King, he said. The Lord God forbid that I should do this to the King and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. You know, sometimes when you're waiting for God's promise, people come along and they just dump their stuff in front of you. And sometimes it stinks. It's like a bowel movement. But that's, what do you got to do? You got to be faithful to God who's given you the promise. You know, let's just, let's just say, make it quite clear, Saul was slinging the spear, not the bowel movement, but there's two separate stories there that you don't want to get confused. But David is there, and Saul comes in to relieve himself and makes a mess in front of him, and David knows that God 
will not allow him to take advantage of that moment. Now again, as a church pastor, I don't have experience in people coming in and dumping their smelly stuff in front of me. But you might. You might, because they don't complain to me, they complain to you. Someone comes and vomits out how unhappy they are or what their attitudes are or what they're upset, you know, their offences are. That's them dumping their stuff in front of you and sometimes it stinks. So what's my best advice to you? Well, same as I give myself. Just hold your nose and keep your eyes on the one who gave the promise. Don't let it affect you. Don't get drawn into that place where you're dealing with someone else's bowel motion. It's the promise that we've got to focus on. And this is the point here. It's the promise when we're waiting. It's the promise that connects people. You know, we're looking at David the man, and I understand that. It, you know, David comes into, the, um, into this place, and he's got men gathering around him. And so if you have a look at 1 Samuel 22, just the first two verses, David leaves Gath, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and the other relatives joined him. Then others began coming. Men were in trouble. Men were in debt. Men were discontented. David had about 400 men gathered around him in the cave. What does that mean? They're gathering around the promise. You know, yes, there's a man in the story, but we've got to make sure that we don't hold the man up higher than the promise or the one who gave the promise. You know, I've got to remind myself this is a leader all the time. I'm on, I'm on a commissioned assignment here, but I don't know the time frame. I don't know what God's going to do, and I, I haven't really got a clear grasp on the pathway. But what do I know? That God's gathering us around a promise, and we've got to keep our eyes on the one who gives the promise, not to worship the promise, but him who gave the promise, and he is faithful. It's the promise that connects people. You know, let's make it really, really clear, just to make it clear for you that David's mighty men, they gathered around the promise. 1 Samuel 23, I'm just skipping you through this story. You can take the notes and, and read it more fully later. 1 Samuel 23, verse 13, David and his men, now there's about 600, left Keilah and began roaming the countryside. Wounds soon reached Saul that David had escaped, so he didn't go. David now stayed in the strongholds of the wilderness in the hill country, and Saul hunted him day after day. But God did not let Saul find him. This is what God's been saying to me as I've been meditating on this week and preparing for today, is that regardless of whether we feel like we're in the wilderness or not, we've got to make sure we keep our eyes on the one who gives the promise. As a church, we're holding on to the promises God's given us. What does that mean for you? You hold on to your promises that you believe God has given you, that you keep your eyes on the one who gave you the promise. Because the one who gave you the promise, he is faithful. Just this morning, I was declaring these verses over my life, my family, and my circumstances. On the screen, you can see Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. He is faithful. And you mustn't base your faith on your circumstances or your emotions, but on the promise Go back to what God said. And I'm preaching to myself here. Please hear me say that. Despite my reality, I will not allow my reality to determine my faith. Let's look at another verse I was declaring over myself this morning. But this is, I found this image on purpose. I don't know if you're going to guess, but that is an almond tree. What's the significance of an almond tree? Do you remember Jeremiah? Is it chapter 1? 
It says, what do you see, an almond tree? And what does this mean? It means the Lord is bringing forth the new bud and he's faithful to deliver what... Come on, we've got to do this. This is God speaking to someone this morning, if not all of us. Jeremiah 1 verse 11, look, this is on my notes, but this is the picture. Look, God said in verse 11 of Jeremiah chapter 1, look, Jeremiah, what do you see? I, Jeremiah replied, I see a branch from an almond tree. And the Lord said, that's right. And it means I am watching and I will certainly carry out all my plans. In my little footnotes here in my Bible, it says the Hebrew word for watching, shaked, Sounds like the word for armatory, shaked. What does it mean? God is faithful. He's alert. He's active. He's watching over his promises and he's faithful to bring it to pass. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, God is faithful. He's called you. He's faithful and he's bringing things to pass. This is a word of encouragement for us. Come on, we've got to say amen and agree with the word of God. Each one of us have promises. Each one of us have challenges. But God is saying today we must be faithful. And what I want us to see is that we've got to be faithful in connection. When we read the story of David, we can read it in 1 Samuel uh, right through to the end and then it passes on to, to his son Solomon. But we can also read it across in 1 Chronicles, which is a parallel text, if you say it that way, um, to keep things simple. 1 Chronicles 11 verse 10, we see a passage where, um, where um, the writers are talking about David and the men that were gathered. It says in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 verse 10, these are the leaders of David's mighty warriors. Together with all Israel, they decided to make David their king just as the Lord had promised Israel. So it wasn't even about the promise to David. It was the promise to Israel, God's nation. God said, I'm faithful to the promise of the nation. I was having um, coffee with a, a friend on Friday who's been in this community much, much longer than I have. And he said to me, we're talking about the journey the church is on. And he said, oh, he said, have you spoken to person X, who I won't name, any, about their vision for um, people being saved in Chiamudu? And I was like, no, I've never heard of this promise. But I want to. Why? Because it concerns Te Awamutu. And the promises of God are bigger than me. They're bigger than my time here. They're about God's plan for his people in this region. And see what we say here. They decided, just as the Lord promised, concerning Israel. We've got to take the context that God is faithful to his promise. And so we see here that there's a promise for power. I want to pause for a minute to show you this picture, but to demonstrate... This is a little analogy that came to me of how powerful our strength can be when we are connected. What's my message about? Connection. Plugged in for power. Where's the strength? The strength is the power. What's the power? We're going to find out in a minute. But how we're connected determines our strength. So in the midst of me thinking about this, the Lord reminded me that one day when I was about 16 years old, my dad taught me the importance of a bowline knot. Why? Because we were on a little trailer sailor in the middle of Tauranga Harbour and we didn't want the ropes to get away from us. So I'm sure Phil knows what this is. I'm sure Doug used these when Adam was still wearing shorts and sailing on the sea. The bowline knot is, sorry, Doug Grayling I meant. 
But um, you can claim that too. But the point is this knot, I want you to show you this because what my dad said when he taught me is you make the rabbit hole, the rabbit comes out of the hole, around the tree and back down the hole and when you pull it, it forms a bowline knot. Watch this. This is how it's formed. Okay, so we see the knot there. What happens, you're going to see this, you take the rope and you make the rabbit hole. You twist it just like that. There's the rabbit hole. And then the other piece of rope is the rabbit. And so Dad said, you take the rabbit out of the hole, it runs around the tree, and then it comes back down the hole, and you pull the knot tight like so. And that's a bowline knot, according to YouTube. Nice and strong. Why am I showing you that? Well, the beautiful thing about that knot is as you pull it with more tension, it becomes stronger. The way the ropes are designed to pull against each other and themselves means that the more tension, the more stronger the knot. Well, I wonder what the analogy is for us as a church. The way we're connected together is important because tension will come. But when there is tension, the way we're connected determines our strength, which determines our power. Power being the optimal end point. So what we see here is that strength, our strength, comes through our connection. Say that. Our strength comes through our connection. This is what God is saying to us. He's trying to focus us on how we're connected in order that we would find strength to find our power. David had the same thing. If you look at, um, there's a key point I want to make here, and that is around the strength that comes through the connection. So 1 Chronicles 12 Verse 38 to 39. If you're writing notes, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 38 to 39. All these men in this passage came in battle to Hebron with the single purpose of making David the king. So these men turned up, his mighty men, his army, the strong men, the ones who are powerful, they came together in their battle array, meaning in their warfare outfits, ready to fight against the enemy with the single purpose of making David the king. Why? Because that was God's promise. Is it about the man? No, it's about God's promise. And everyone in Israel agreed that David should be their king. Oh, I love the next verse. For this 39. They feasted and drank with David for three days for preparations had been made by their relatives. They were excited and were celebrating that God was doing something special in their midst. Their connection gave them strength. So what's the first thing I'm saying? The promise of God that connects people. The second thing I'm saying, our strength, which gives us power, our strength comes through our connection. The nature of our connection is very, very important. So thirdly, I want to make it personal for you. As you read the narrative of the gathering of David and his men, what you're going to discover is that connection is vital for purpose. Connection is vital for purpose. And you can see at the bottom of the screen there, I'm talking about personal purpose. I'm personalizing it for you, each one of you. Connection is vital for your personal purpose. In 2009, we were living in the United States, and my brother, who was um, in those days, um, I think he was still in the car industry, he sent me this, this message and said, hey, I just read this book. It's amazing. You've got to read it. And, and the book was by a pastor called Mark Batterson, who's based in Washington, D.C. And I've since got probably half a dozen of Mark's books on my, in my bookshelf. 
uh, at home because I really, really like the way he unpacks the scripture and he reads a lot of historical documents alongside scripture to bring life to um, the principles that he's teaching. And so when we're in Washington, we went and found this guy's church. And, and they, in that stage, they were meeting in movie theaters all across Washington, D.C. So we ended up going to the one in Union Station in the middle of Washington. You rock in there at 10 in the morning, because in those days, they didn't put movies on in the morning. So they would rock in there, have these big comfy seats, and the band would play some songs. And then up on the screen came the pastor with his message. It was the model that they were using to reach the young generation in Washington at seven movie theaters around Washington at the time. Back to the book. This book was called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. What a long title for a book. Where'd that, where'd that come from? Come from a story in this text right here. It's a, it's a story about a guy whose name is Beniah, and he's part of David's crew. He's in fact part of David's um, mighty men. So here's a little picture to give you an idea of what the story says. The story you can find in 1 Chronicles 11, verse 20. 1 Chronicles 11, verse 20. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was the leader of the 30 men. These are the guys that were kick-butt team. He once used his spear to kill 300 enemy warriors, and it was by such feats that he became as famous as the three famous ones. Abishai was the most famous of the 30 and was their commander. Verse 22, there was also Benaiah, son of Jehodah, the valiant warrior from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Once armed with only a club, he killed an Egyptian warrior who was seven and a half feet tall and whose spear was as thick as a weaver's beam. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the 30, though he was not one of the three. And David made him captain of his bodyguard. If you ever look at this passage of Scripture in the wider verses, you'll see that the, the chronicler, the writer, is, is giving you details on all these mighty men and who they are in the army. And this man stands out. This man, crazy it would seem, like what would possess him to chase after a lion through the snow down into what I can only assume is a pit, or a, it says pit, but maybe it's a cave or a, a, a pit where they trap animals. He chases this lion down into there, and he decides to kill it. For what purpose? We don't know. Maybe it was harassing them. Maybe it was stealing children. Maybe it was digging up the vegetables. Maybe it was leaving deposits on the lawn. I don't know. It doesn't say. But this guy is crazy enough and strong enough to get in there and to kill the lion. And he became famous for it. What's my point? We should all be in a place where we shine and stories are told about what we did because we're serving God. What's my point? If you have a look at this, Benaiah is known as a man who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Legends are made through connection. He was established as the commander of the army because of his strength, because he was connected. Because he was connected, he found his strength. Because he found his strength, he found his power. Because of that, he made himself to be a legend. What does that mean for you? You're sitting there wondering, what on earth does this mean for little old me? God wants you to shine with all the talents 
and all the strength and all his glory that he's deposited in you. You are not to sit there and think, oh, well, that's all right for him. He's the pastor. He should be out there. He should be one doing it. He should be beating up the lions. No, no, no. It wasn't David who killed the lion in the story. It was one of his team, one of his men. What's my prayer for you? That you would learn to shine. That you would learn to use your strengths and your talents to get out there and do great things in order that God would be glorified and legends are made. Is it about being famous? No, that's not my point. Not my point at all. My point is that you would do what God's designed you to do. God always achieves his desires through people who are connected. I want to try and land this if I can, and I want to bring it back to why we're plugged in. Because when we are connected, we're powerful in pursuing God's promises. This is my intention today, to bring us to a place where we understand there's a reason we're coming together that God has a purpose and a promise for us, that as we, as we connect with each other, we're plugged in for power, and that something radical is going to happen because he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He is faithful to his promise. Last week, Ashley brought a message, and it was great. You should listen to it. It's on the podcast. Um, I want to land there today. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the radical transformation that happened on earth on the day of Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Pentecost Sunday is in two weeks' time. On the 9th of June, we will remember Pentecost because Pentecost happened 50 days after Easter. And so we pick a Sunday that's close to that, and we remember Pentecost. And we've got some amazing things planned both in the morning and in the evening. In the evening, we're going to have an encounter service. It's going to go off the charts. Why? Because God's still in the business of bringing the outpouring of his Holy Spirit to radically transform people who are hungry to change their world. And if that's you, you don't want to miss out. Read, let's read Acts chapter 2 and the first four verses. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Well, that sounds like connection. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. God invaded our world. This is not another planet. This is our world. This is the earth. This is human race, mankind desired in God's image. And God invades this world with his Holy Spirit and radically transforms a group of believers who went on to change the world. We are going to recognize that and celebrate that in two weeks' time, and I really do want you to be part of it. Holy Spirit fell and changed the world forever. What happened? There are some summary points for you on the screen. God brought an outpouring of His Spirit in verse 2. The good news is declared. You can read this this afternoon and, and read what Peter preached. He preached the good news about Jesus Christ, and people responded to connect together in faith radically. He said, what, they said, what should we do? He said, repent. Be baptized and come together. And then signs and wonders were to follow. So you can see those references on the screen and just read Acts chapter 2 and you'll get the impact of what happens when we connect together. Ashley shared about this uh, last week and she had some other passages she used, but she also landed on this. And she said something really important that I captured when I listened to it. She said, connection changes our behavior. Connection changes our behavior. So then I thought to myself, what does connection with others look like? So in verse 42, we can see it. 
Let me, show, let me read it to you. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. That's what connection looks like. Devoted to biblical learning. Well, that's why we organize night school. That's why we have School of the Spirit. That's why we prepare lessons for Bible studies and, and people meet to do Bible studies. What's the point? When we get a revelation of God's love and power, we actually want to grow. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to grow in the Spirit and the things that God's given to us as gifts. And we've got to become devoted to learning these things, and it best happens in connection. It says they fellowship with one another in that verse. What does that look like for us? Well, we've just relaunched connect groups as a church because we believe it's really important that we have relationship with each other outside of a Sunday. And connect groups are an intimate way that you can get together with a couple of other families, have a cup of tea and a biscuit or share a meal together and talk about Jesus and talk about your life as a disciple of Jesus. This best happens when you're with others and you grow together. It says they shared meals together. Well, what have we organized for that? Well, on the third Sunday of the month, we have what we call family table. We did this last Sunday. We put on food. People brought their food, and we had potluck, and we sat around, and we had a great time. Why? Because doing life together and breaking bread together is biblical, and it forms a connection. And in our connection, we find our strength, and in our strength, we find our power. We don't just do these things to fill your calendar up. In fact, we've stripped things out of the calendar this year. We've scheduled these things to try and not invade your world too much and not make you too busy. The first Wednesday of the month, as Jamie said, is prayer. The second Wednesday of the month is when we suggest connect groups get together. The third week is night school. These things we do in order to bring people together into connection. Finally, it says there, they prayed together. God has been speaking to the elders about our need as a church to lift the bar in prayer. I'm a little bit uncomfortable what that might mean, but I'm going to be obedient when God tells me. All right, I'm just letting you know that prayer is vital. It's a foundation stone. You can see if you look back at Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Why were they meeting? To pray as Jesus taught them to pray. Your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And the result of that changed our world forever. What am I trying to demonstrate? There's power when we come together. What kind of power is it? Well, the answer is God's power. Signs and wonders follow connection. In verse 43, as I finish, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders amongst them. Church, signs and wonders follow connection. When we're connected together, God moves in power to change people's lives. And if you finish the story in chapter 2, you'll see that the Lord added to their numbers daily. He grew his church on the back of the power of them being together. So may this be our prayer. This is certainly my prayer. Can I ask you to make this your prayer? Lord, would you move in power to change people's lives? And Lord, would you continue to do miraculous things amongst us? I'm sure he will, as long as we're plugged in for that power. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jamie.